Hi, this is Chris Date, and you're listening to the The Apologetics Podcast, episode 111, Jesus, Sweet Savior Divine. Today I've got a very special interview in store for you, and I'll tell you about that in a moment. I do want to apologize for how long it's been since my last episode. Uh, as many of you know, I'm also part of another ministry at RethinkingHell.com, which is uh, which sort of led to the, the the interview that you're going to listen to today. Although it has absolutely nothing to do with hell, um, so don't worry, don't don't switch off the episode just yet. It has nothing to do with that topic. Um, I do want to let you know that in the next uh, over the next few months, I hope to be able to put out a few episodes, uh, not just this one. I would like to get back into at least a little bit more frequent uh, podcasting here on my own personal podcast, and I have some ideas in store to do just that. Um, but today, the interview is the result of a debate that I had planned with somebody that I'm becoming quick friends with. His name is Dr. Phil Fernandez, and he's uh, an apologist and theologian that teaches uh, here in the Pacific Northwest near where I live. And what had happened was um, I was talking to a friend of mine at church about uh, my relatively newfound position on the topic of hell. And uh, he had mentioned that there was somebody uh, here in the area named Dr. Phil Fernandez that has been that has done some debates, primarily with atheists, uh, but also one or two with fellow believers in, in Jesus Christ, but who hold to different topics on things like, uh, you know, Calvinism versus Arminianism or, or what have you. Well, so anyway, I, I had done a couple of, um, as you know, a couple of online debates over the radio or over over podcasts uh, on the topic of hell, and I really wanted to do a live in-person one. And since here was somebody who, a well-known, well, relatively well-known scholar and theologian here in, in the area in which I live, I thought, hey, this might be a great idea to uh, to not only get my feet wet in the live in-person debate kind of uh, world, uh, but also to, to be able to do so in a way that demonstrates that two Christians can disagree on the topic of hell in, in a loving, respectful, brotherly way, a way that honors uh, the Lord that we both claim to serve. And so I thought, okay, I'll give it a shot. I'll reach out to this guy and see what he thinks. And I did that, and he agreed, which is great. Uh, and we eventually agreed to debate the topic in person here in the Pacific Northwest on uh, Saturday, September 24th, I believe it is. No, Saturday, September 28th. But as it turned out, that wasn't the only debate that he had planned in, in that general kind of time frame. As it turns out, he also has a debate, a much more important debate, uh, defending the doctrine of the Trinity and the deity of Jesus Christ with a Unitarian named Dave Barron. Uh, and he has that debate planned for early in, uh, uh, or sorry, in the middle of November. And my concern and his concern, my friend Phil's concern, uh, was that the time that he would be taking to prepare for his debate with me on the topic of hell, the less important topic of hell, would be time that he could have otherwise spent um, preparing for the more important debate that he had planned in which he would be defending the deity of Jesus Christ. And so what I decided to do, what I offered to do, was to help him as best as I possibly could to prepare for that debate um, with the with the Unitarian, Dave Barron. And as part of that, I reached out to some friends of mine to find out what are some good resources for the kind of sophisticated Unitarianism that, um, that I knew would, uh, Dr. Fernandez would be facing. And one of the names that came up uh, was the name of the author uh, that I'm going to be interviewing today. I don't want to give that away. <laughs> so uh, stay tuned for, uh, stay tuned here in a few minutes. We'll jump into that interview and, and you'll get to hear the guest that I'm talking about. So my hope is that uh, with this interview, as well as with one or two more between now and November, I'll get to interview some scholars on the topic of the Trinity and on the topic of the deity of Jesus Christ in order to help my friend Phil prepare for his debate. That's sort of the background to the interview that you're going to hear today. Before we get into that, the next promo in my rotation is for Renewing Your Mind with Dr. R.C. Sproul of Ligonier Ministries. Let's listen. Stay tuned. Renewing Your Mind with Dr. R.C. Sproul is next. And our Quorum Deo thought for today. Let me say to you, dear friends, that you may not want Christ. You may not want to be bothered 
with religious things. But dear friend, you need Christ. You know you're not perfect. You know that you're not holy. And you know that God is holy. And the biggest problem you will ever face in your existence is how to reconcile that problem. And what Christianity is all about is that righteousness has been achieved by somebody else for me and for all who put their faith in Him. God provides what you need. As I've said many times in the past, I'm a huge fan of Dr. R.C. Sproul. Uh, I got to meet him in person at a conference, actually here only a matter of blocks from where I'm actually recording the episode right now. Uh, and it was uh, it was just excellent meeting him. Um, he's been influential in me uh, for me when it comes to my soteriology as well as to my eschatology. Uh, so I would definitely recommend that you check him out. In order to subscribe to the podcast, it is free, but there but there is some legwork you'll have to do. You need to go to ligonier.org. That's L-I-G-O-N-I-E-R.org. And you can click on the audio broadcast link about in the middle of the page, and there will be a uh, podcast tab. And when you click on that, you'll be asked to supply your first, last name, and email address, and then you'll be able to subscribe to the podcast, which, is, which as I said, is something that I really highly recommend. Uh, so with that, let's go right into my interview with, again, a guest whom I'm not going to name <laughs> until after the intro music is out of the way. Here we go. Jesus Sweet Savior divine, Jesus, precious friend of mine. Wherever I go, whatever I do, I know I can always depend on you. I love you, I love you, I love you, sweet Savior divine. As some of you know, I'll be debating eschatology in September with my friend Dr. Phil Fernandez. Uh, But that's not his only upcoming debate. In November, he'll be debating a much more important topic, defending the Trinity and the deity of Jesus Christ against a Unitarian named Dave Barron. Uh, Dave and some others today who deny the historic Orthodox Christian doctrine of the Trinity are much more sophisticated in their views and in their arguments than some of the more lay lay people. And in order to free Phil up to prepare for his debate with me, I've offered to help him prepare for his debate with Dave. Now, I I reached out to some friends of mine asking for some of the best resources that I could find to counter these more sophisticated brands of Unitarianism. And one name that I was given was that of Dr. Chris Tilling, who joins me today to discuss the topic, uh, as well as his book, Paul's Divine Christology. Dr. Tilling is New Testament tutor for St. Melodis College and St. Paul's Theological Center in London, and he's a visiting lecturer in theology at King's College. He studied at St. Andrews University and, uh, and London School of Theology, and has completed a doctorate under Max Turner in Pauline Christology, and his book, Paul's Divine Christology, is a slightly modified revision of his doctoral thesis, if I understand that correctly. So thanks thanks so much for joining me today, Dr. Tilling. I really appreciate it. Pleasure to be with you. Uh, now, I've got a lot of questions for you about your book and about Christology, but before we get to those, can you just maybe say a word or two about yourself by way of introduction? Um, goodness. Well, uh, sort of my academic biographies covered um, in what you've already said. I've got a book coming out shortly. I'm editing a volume uh, which is called Beyond Old and New Perspectives on Paul. Uh, so it's very much in, in the, the orbit of the Apostle Paul, and that's my speciality. But I'll be moving out of the Apostle Paul into John and the Synoptics in the uh, for my sabbatical, and I'm just about to begin my sabbatical term. I'm very much looking forward to having time just to sit down and read and reflect and pray uh, about things. I'm, so I'm married to uh, Anya Tilling. Uh, she and I, we, I went to Germany to, to learn German just before I began my PhD, and I met her there, and we've been married now for over 10 years. And, Congratulations. Um, goodness, I don't know really what else to say about <laughs> myself, except perhaps that the whole question of Arianism, if, if that's how we should describe it, and I use that word Arian as, as a cipher for a theological perspective. Uh, you know, I, I think it's unfair to, to label uh, Arius with too much of what has become known as Arianism. But let's mm. just stick with Arianism and uh, Arian. I, I, when I first became a Christian back in my late teens, I went along to my local library and I 
I, I wanted to know more about the Bible because I had very little background information. I didn't know what to do with these texts. I was going to a Baptist church, and, uh, and it, was, it was all fine and well, but I wanted to delve in, and I picked up this book called, uh, oh, goodness, I can't remember the name, but Introducing the Bible of some sort. I took it home and began reading it and, and was very disturbed to see that it was actually suggesting that the Bible says that Jesus is not God, is not equal in divinity with God the Father. And uh, this book pointed out, you know, God cannot be tempted. Here's a Bible verse, and here's a Bible verse saying Jesus was tempted. You know, go figure. So Jesus wasn't God. And and, and this threw my faith into uh, terrible confusion, because in my Baptist church, of course, everyone was saying, uh, you know, affirming the orthodox doctrines of the church. And I suppose that then began a quest for me, uh, relating to divine Christology in particular, and we'll come to that term, I'm sure, to define it later on. Uh, what, what, does it, what, what is the teaching of Scripture regarding the person and identity of Jesus Christ? Yeah. No, that's, that's really interesting. If, if you don't mind me asking a little bit more of a lighthearted question, is it true that you, that you wrote Beans, Beans are good for your heart, and did you really first discover haiku? <laughs> <laughs> well, I claim to on my blog. Let's leave it at that. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Now, uh, you, you tutor New Testament at uh, St. Melodis. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. St. Melodis College. St. College, yeah. Melitus, yeah. okay. I butchered yeah, it. I think Melitus sounds a bit like a disease. It does, that's true. Uh, nevertheless, you tutor there, uh, and you tutor at St. Paul's Theological Center. Can you tell us a little bit about those institutions and why any of my listeners in London, uh, or might be in London, why they might want to check them out? Yeah, well, St. St. Paul's Theological Center is a part of St. Melitus College. St. Melitus College is the umbrella institution, which... Uh, 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 so, I, best if we speak about St. Melitus College. Okay. It's the Church of England's, the Anglican Church's uh, newest training institution in, in the UK. And right now, we are training more students than any other uh, similar college in, in the UK. We, are, we operate under what we would call generous orthodoxy. That is, we are faithful to creedal Christianity, but we, we have on staff and we have amongst our student bodies uh, Christians from very different perspectives and very different worshipping traditions through from charismatic to Anglo-Catholic, which is something of an adventure and something new in the Church of England and something precious and beautiful. Mm. I expect, say, too, we... Key to our ethos here is that we don't do distance learning. We, we believe very much that theology is done in the context of community, in the context of worship, in, in the context of, of real-life relationships. And so we encourage uh, study to, to take place within ongoing ministry in the church. So we don't suck students out of their ministry uh, to train them up for a few years before sending them back. We, we um, do full-time mixed-mode training, that's at least one of our routes, where we, we have students for a couple of days a week, and they're in their churches for the rest, and we get them then to think theologically about what they're doing in church, and that also informs, of course, their theology and their mm. study. And so that's a little bit about St. Melitus. It's an absolutely wonderful uh, place to work, and, and if anyone is in London, then do come along and check us out. We worship here. I mean, I'm looking out at the moment at St. Jude's Church, which is where we're based. It's near Earl's Court in London, and uh, we also have a service here on Sunday mornings. Um, yeah, I think okay. that's Well, I'll tell you what, if I'm ever in London, maybe I'll, <laughs> maybe I'll sit in and, and maybe meet well. you. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I don't want to let the cat out of the bag too soon when it comes to the, the fresh approach uh, that you bring to the Christological debate in your book. We'll come to that in a little bit. But for now, can you tell us sort of how it is that you came up with the idea for your doctoral thesis that would eventually become the book? Oh, goodness. Well, um, I, I put rather cheekily in, in the preface to my book that it came out of a season of prayer, um, this particular idea for this book. Uh, it, it felt a little bit like it was dropped out of the, the blue sky to me. <laughs> but I hasten to add in my preface that all uh, uh, um, that everything else in the book uh, uh, contains errors and is mine, and I can't blame God for any <laughs> errors <laughs> in the book. Uh, sure. But um, uh, it was a season of prayer, as well as a, a very appreciative read of uh, Merdad Fatehi's book, The Spirit's Relation to the Risen Lord in Paul. 
and uh, engaging with his work helped me to uh, to firm up on what I consider to be a massive gap, a yawning gap in in the whole debate regarding Pauline Christology. Mm. Well, we're going to come to that gap in a minute. Uh, but but you do you also write in the beginning of your book you talk about the people who claim to affirm a high Christology of sorts may even maybe even want to use the word divine in some sense, uh, although they'll heavily qualify it. What well, what sorts of views are they putting forth? These people who hold a, a not divine but high Christology. Um, well, yeah, there's a there's an awful lot of very different approaches. But if I were to take one as an example, namely James Dunn. Now, he's a good example of someone who would affirm a high Christology, as he would put it himself. Uh, but by that, um, he wouldn't mean to, and here I'm using the language of Richard Borkham, and perhaps we'll come back to this later. He wouldn't say that Jesus is, for Paul, unambiguously included in the divine identity and who God is. Mm. On the divine side of the line, monotheism must draw between God and creatures that, that instead... Paul betrays what would appear to be um, a little bit of theological tension that only at moments did he let his theological guard slip and say very high things about Jesus, that Jesus is God, Romans 9.5 and, and other texts like that. But generally speaking, Jimmy Dunn would want to say that, look, God God is clearly distinguished from, from Christ in Paul's letters. Hence, Christ is called Lord, not as a way of saying he is God, but as a way of distinguishing him from God. Mm. Uh, you see in, the, in Paul's letters, Christ is subordinate to God the Father, 1 Corinthians 15, so eschatologically speaking. But also in passages in 2 Corinthians and elsewhere, uh, Paul would speak of, of the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Christ has a God. You know, so the, the, this and, and the fact that uh, Christ isn't unambiguously worshipped using the, the, the kind of language that you would expect, or at least the evidence isn't so clear in Paul's letters, as, as Larry Hurtado would like to suggest, he would then argue, look, we cannot then say with Paul we have a divine Christology in the way I mentioned earlier on. That takes a little bit of time. By the time we get to John's Gospel, he would say, then things become much clearer. Mm. Christ is clearly personally pre-existent and accorded divinity in a very direct and propositionally clear way. Um, so that would be an example of someone who affirms a high Christology in Paul, but not in the way I would. I see. And I don't know if this is true for uh, Dunn, but it certainly seems to be true for people like uh, Anthony Buzzard, uh, Sir Anthony Buzzard, I should probably call him, and, and uh, Dave Barron, in fact. They, they rely heavily upon arguments based on the concept of agency in, in Second Temple Judaism. Um, could you summarize, or sorry, can you explain what the concept of agency is in Second Temple Judaism and, and how it's relevant to the modern debate over Christology? Oh, well, yeah, well, this is a massive area. Um and it depends how how this topic is is adopted uh, so agency for some scholars will mean something very different for for someone who's more or less um on on the side of divine christology uh such as as Larry Hurtado for example but uh, usually scholars will want to try to explain how did we get to divine christology in the early church how is it that that Jesus Christ came to be uh, associated so closely with God the Father in terms bordering on, as some would say, or even tipping over into divine identity categories, so where mm. Jesus is God. It's an, in other words, it's, an, it's, an, it's a quest to explain the evolution of divine Christology. How did we get there? Because here we have someone who is clearly very significant in the actions and even creative power of God, and yet is distinct from God. Uh, so, so people like Larry Hurtado um, uh, uh, would, uh, or oh, Andrew Chester, and, and many, many others besides, will scour the, the sources of Second Temple Judaism. So that's, that's the, the literary resources we have of Judaism around the time of Paul. Uh, in order to try to find parallels where there is a divine agent, some, some being, 
some exalted or heavenly being that is extremely significant in what God is and is doing, but is yet distinct from God. Mm. And these figures will then be analyzed extensively and parallels will be drawn between what these texts say about these figures and what Paul says about Jesus Christ. So to take uh, uh, um, an example, you have, um, or shall I go for the difficult one first? Well, why not? <laughs> there's, there's Enoch in the similitudes of Enoch. Now, the similitudes of Enoch are a number of chapters from from First Enoch. It's a pseudepigraphal text, uh, probably um, predating Paul's letters, although there's debate on that. And it was a Jewish text, probably. And and in this text, we have this this son of man figure. Now, this son of man figure is distinguished from. The Lord, uh, the Lord of the Spirits, which is the name for God in this text. Uh, but nevertheless, this figure is key to what God does in the eschatological future. Uh, he, he sits on the divine throne, he's worshipped, and he, is, uh, he executes judgment. Uh, his presence is seen as, as powerful, and, and even Old Testament God texts, Texts, that is, that refer to God in, in the Old Testament, come to be applied to this figure as well in First Enoch. So here we have a principal divine agent. And some would say, now this helps us to explain the relationship between Jesus and God in Paul's letters. So that maybe that's a, something that, that gives people something to chew on regarding divine agency. Have I answered your question there? I think you have. I'm curious, though, is, is there a good reason to believe that in this book, uh, this similitudes of, of uh, you know, that you mentioned, is, is this divine agent not only, you know, uh, distinct from God, but clearly not divine in the sense that we believe that Christ was, is? Yeah. Yes, I think so, yes. There's a... Uh, uh, there's clear evidence for, okay. for that in the way the Son of Man is positioned before the Father. He stands before the Father. He only, uh, sorry, before the Lord of the Spirits. Um, I think I think the text is quite self-conscious in distinguishing uh, the two. Um, okay. Although there's some debate on this, there, there are some. I can think of one scholar who would argue that, given that the the divine name seems to indwell the the Son of Man that we have here, or not in dwell, but uh, is associated with the Son of Man, that here we have a, truly a second power in heaven. Uh, but um, I think that that is stretching the evidence. A closer reading of the similitudes of Enoch suggests that the Son of Man is not divine, certainly not in the sense that we see Christ being ascribed divinity in his letters. But we'll, we'll perhaps come back to some of those issues. Sure. And, you know, the reason I asked the question about agency, and, and I'm glad that you explained what you did, because the, this figure that you described in a variety of ways sounds very much like the way Christ is described in the New Testament. And this, this seems to me to pose a challenge to some of the more popular uh, Trinitarian apologists out there. You know, they'll, they'll point out that Jesus is called God in various ways, that he's worshipped, that Old Testament language about Yahweh is applied to him, all of which they, they argue is proof of, that, of, of a truly divine Christology in Scripture. But are, do you think that maybe these are inadequate in addressing more sophisticated denials of Christ's divinity, divinity ones based perhaps, on the kind of agency that you just described? Um, taken in isolation, yes, I think that they are inadequate arguments. I don't think they are wrong arguments, though. Uh, I think uh, that they, these arguments are correct once they are taken up into uh, a, the bigger picture, which is what I try to, to do in my own book. I see. Uh, but I, so I don't think that they are wrong arguments, but isolated and in and of themselves, they, they don't carry sufficient uh, weight to rebute some of uh, the, for want of a better phrase, Aryan arguments. Gotcha. Well, what about the more uh, scholarly Trinitarian apologetics, or, well, Trinitarian works, uh, people like Fee, Bauckham, uh, Hurtado? In, in your book, you note some of the differences between their approaches and yours. Before we get into what it is that you hope to bring afresh to the table, can you tell us a bit about these past scholars and, and, and their work? Well, they're, they're current scholars, but you know what I mean, their, their past work. What, what do you think it is that they did well, and what do you see, see to be some of the shortcomings of their approaches? Yeah, wow. Uh, well, if I were to focus on, oh goodness, this, 
off the top of my head, I should grab my book. Um, Brian Capes, for example, he's um, some excellent work that he's done on uh, Old Testament Yahweh texts. So he looks at Paul's letters and he sees, look, here we seem to have, uh, Paul is using texts that in the Old Testament referred to the Lord as Yahweh. And, and here Paul is using them to refer to Christ. So classically from, from Romans, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And in context, it seems to be very much the Lord Jesus. Uh, but for the text that is being cited is very much Yahweh. Uh, so this would be an example of an approach to affirm Paul's divine Christology by looking at the way Paul used the Old Testament. Mm. Now, I think this is a good argument, but um, Jimmy Dunn, for example, will come back to that and say, but that oversimplifies Paul's hermeneutics. You know, Paul did a lot of things with Old Testament texts that isn't straightforward. So uh, it's an insufficient argument. So Jimmy Dunn mm. could, can just simply swipe that under the, the carpet. It's not sufficient enough. <laughs> if you get someone like, um, well, the most, the most vigorous and, and the largest work has been published by Gordon Fee, uh, um, called, um, uh, what is it, Paul's Christology, goodness me, my brain, <laughs> um, uh, yes, must be, I'm just looking at my bookshelf feverishly now, um, you know, I, I, I took some antihistamines for my sneezing yesterday, and this is relevant, I promise, <laughs> and, and these are new, new antihistamines uh, for, for um, allergies, and they're state-of-the-art, and I took one last night before I went to bed, little realizing that uh, it kept me awake the whole night apart from a couple oh, of hours. <laughs> so I'm a little bit tired. So that may explain my, my scattiness. But Gordon Fee's uh, book on Christology is uh, very important and very helpful, particularly because of his exegetical rigor. You know, he's one of these excellent evangelical scholars that, that really wrestles with the text. And so he goes laboriously through text after text relating to Christology in Paul's letters in order to try to find out, well, what is the status of Christ in these texts? So there's nothing, no stone is left unturned. And with Gordon Fee's exegetical skill, I, I think particularly when he gets to Philippians chapter 2, um, he comes up with a, a lot of very helpful uh, insights. In my own uh, work, I critique fairly thoroughly I mean I, I do that primarily because Fee published his book uh, halfway through my PhD uh, studies and uh, I needed to you know get show the clear blue sea between my approach and Gordon Fee's approach mm. um, so I'm, I'm I spend a lot more time critiquing Fee than I do for example Jimmy Dunn um, because of the similarities in my arguments with, with Gordon Fees. But I think one of the key issues is that I think he is driven by certain questions that aren't entirely alien to Paul's letters, but aren't entirely appropriate either. either. So, for example, he does a lot of work asking whether Paul's Christ is pre-existent mm. and, and whether Paul's Christ is, is worshipped. Now, these are uh, very important questions, but Paul doesn't have an awful lot to say about these matters, uh, frankly. And, and so I, I sometimes wonder if he's trying to strain gnats and, and find significance um, that, that maybe Paul wouldn't recognize too readily. Mm. So Gordon Fee's book is very helpful, but I'm not sure the questions that he is asking are always appropriate to Paul's actual letters um larry hurtado i i'm really i'm wondering where my gordon fee book is i must have put <laughs> it away goodness i have to get that one back um larry hurtado has published a number of important books relating to uh christology lord jesus christ devotion to jesus and earliest christianity is his most important uh his earliest one or at least uh, the one that propelled him to uh, international fame was the one God, one Lord. But there have been others uh, since then. How on earth did Jesus become a God? And a number of articles and essays that he's, he's published. And his approach is to consider 
how Christ is included in the devotional life of the earliest Christians. So while Christological language is certainly important, and it's a misunderstanding of Lara Hurtado to think he only focuses on worship, he doesn't, but that's a key aim for him, is to analyze how does the figure Jesus actually figure in the worship of the Pauline communities. And he argues that, it, that through a whole pattern of issues, the name of Christ being called on, Christ being central to uh, the worship of church and the Lord's Supper or, or baptism, uh, prayers to Christ and so on, there Christ seems to be treated as only a God would be treated. Mm. And then he goes through the texts to show that, that no other figure was actually worshipped in a community, in a cultic setting, in a real-life communal cultic setting. Uh, and so this is very helpful. Then he says, well, then therefore we can deduce that for Paul, Christ is, is fully divine. Maybe I should say as well at this point, by fully divine, uh, and I have my own ways of stating what I mean by that, and we can come back to that, but a useful starting point a divine Christology isn't just Jesus is a very exalted being, but that Jesus is on the divine side of the line. Monotheism must draw between God and everything else. Right. That, that, that Christ is included in the divine identity in who God is. And in that respect, Larry Hattardo would say, yes, Christ is included in the divine identity. And we can see that by this focus on the communal cultic worship of the Pauline community. Now, a problem with this approach, although I think it's a good and strong argument, uh, one problem at least is that uh, Paul doesn't have much to say about the worship of Jesus per se in his letters. Uh, there, there's some evidence there. But others have responded to Hurtado, like Morris Casey, and said, look, the evidence that you've cited is extremely sparse and not very convincing. So it's an awful lot of weight to put on some isolated passages like Philippians chapter 2 and others that can be variously uh, understood. Secondly, Larry Hurtado uses the um, category of agency an awful lot. Now, I'm not sure whether this is uh, helpful to his argument. I mean, he wants to look at, and this is particularly in One God, One Lord, he, he argues that we need to understand Jewish agency figures, these, these divine uh, principal agency figures, uh, as a way of understanding how Jesus is associated with God and yet distinct from God. Uh, but I'm not sure that his evolutionary approach really explains much of what is in Paul's letters. Mm. Um, but I, I go into uh, that in more depth in my own book. My concern with Larry Hurtado's perspective, in other words, is that he has allowed other agendas to dictate his, his approach rather than the phenomenon of Paul's letters themselves. I see. Richard okay. Orkham is the last one I'll mention. He's, he's I think, the most brilliant scholar uh, in uh, working in this area, and, and the, the man is incredibly learned, and um, whatever he writes needs to be read. Uh, <laughs> I think it's as simple as that. And he wrote this little book uh, long ago, um, uh, God Crucified, and uh, uh, he ha he has been um, uh, looking, planning to publish um, work on on that develops this soon, but he's just got a few other things to get out of the way first before he can turn back to that work in God Crucified. But in, in that text, he, he's the chap who, who tries to say, look, we, we need to ask who God is in Jewish texts, and, and how Jesus is related to who God is, not what God is, because that's a, that's a foreign way of speaking of God. Key is that God in Second Temple Judaism was understood relationally. Mm. That is, uh, God was, was known through his special covenantal relationship with Israel, but also through the way he related to all of creation as creator, as eternal sovereign king sitting on his throne. Now, Richard Borkham then picks up on the, the latter emphasis on God's relation to all creation and applies that to Paul's letters. And 
I think that essay has now been published um, in his Jesus and the God of Israel, if I remember rightly. Uh, but his Paul's Christology, he explores that in, in depth and shows, look, here's, Christ is associated with creation in sovereign rule. And in other New Testament passages, Christ is seated on the divine throne uh, and is worshipped as, as only God would be and so on and so forth. In other words, we have everything that identified God in his unique divinity apply to Christ. Therefore, Christ is included on the divine side of the line. Monotheism must draw between God and creatures. Now, this is, this is an incredibly brilliant and subtle argument. Larry Hurtado isn't too happy with, with this uh, <laughs> development. He thinks that, that Richard Borkham has imposed uh, deductive categories on, on material where he should be focusing more on the phenomenon of, of the cultic worship of Christ. And Andrew Chester would be another uh, scholar who would respond to Richard and say, look, these, the categories that you've generated that establish the divine identity, they are um, your constructs. That this, this, is, this isn't true across all of the literature. Think of Enoch, the, the, the chappy I mentioned earlier on from the similitudes of Enoch. Andrew Chester uses this guy to say, look, here we have someone on the throne and worshipped participating in some degree in God's sovereignty, and yet he isn't included in the divine identity. Or we get the Logos in Philo, uh, a, a second God, and, and, and associated with attributes that we ascribe to God, and, uh, but, but distinct from God in some shape and form as well. In other words, Richard Borkham's categories don't seem to fit across all Jewish texts. Hmm. And, and I would also say that it's, it's a pity that Richard Borkham didn't pursue his line of thought regarding the relationality of monotheism, that is, faith in the one God of Israel, in terms of the, the covenant people of God, rather than just God in relation to creation, because that is the dominant part of, of, the, of the material that we find both in the Old Testament and in Paul's letters. It's how God is known in his covenantal relationship with his people. And is that is that kind of the the gap that your book seeks to fill? I mean, you use use the phrases or uh, you know God relation and Christ relation, and so is that what you just hinted at? Is that sort of can you summarize that a little bit more for us before we start getting into specific passages and stuff? The gap yeah, that sure. you, your book seeks to fill. Yeah, because whenever we're asking about divine Christology, we're asking two questions. We're, we're asking one about God and one about Christ. And, and uh, there's a great debate at the moment about uh, to what extent we should speak of Second Temple Jewish monotheism or not. Is a monotheism an appropriate description of what Jews believed around the time of Paul? So you will get some, uh, a minority of scholars who will say, look, no, monotheism, uh, there wasn't a monotheism at all and nothing like it. Uh, Margaret Barker uh, would, would be one scholar who would suggest that there was a high God and then there were various um, uh, lords underneath this. And Israel's Lord God, Yahweh, uh, is, is, um, is then later to be, uh, became associated with Jesus. But these are minority views. Mm -hmm. uh, others would say that monotheism was inclusive, not strict, in, in the first century um, uh, um, that uh, Herodian monotheism was, had blurry boundaries. And, and so there are angels and other spiritual beings alongside God. Um, William Horbury, for example, would, uh, would entertain this perspective. But most of us, I think it's fair to say, are convinced still, despite <laughs> Christ's protest in some corners, that monotheism is a very good description of Jewish faith. Hmm. Um, one has to be careful what one means with this kind of language, of course, and that's where it's helpful to think about relationality. Uh, I think we should speak of a strict monotheism, that there is no God but one. But this monotheism wasn't an abstract claim about metaphysical truth alone. Rather, it was about a committed relationship with the King of Israel. And this, of course, goes right back to the, the, the closest thing to a creed in the Old Testament, the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God, and so forth. This goes back to Deuteronomy. That is one sentence in the Hebrew. Here we have 
a claim about the oneness of God, this Ehad, but it is described in terms of love and commitment to this one God. That's mm. crucial, because this is what I find across the literature of Second Temple Judaism. There is a strict monotheism, but God is understood as unique precisely in this unique relationship that God has with Israel. God is to love and serve this God and no idols. And right. this is the way that Second Temple Jews understood God. So on the one hand, that's, that's who God is, and that's key. But the other question is, um, who is Jesus then? And what is the evidence for and against a divine Christology in, in Paul's letters? And that's certainly where my book will seek to um, answer some questions. So so if I'm understanding correctly, it, it seeks to, or, or it's pointing out that um, monotheism is not only a question about ontology, it's also a question about uh, relationship. And, and, and it's this yeah, relationship... I would just say there... Um, uh, I'm a little uncomfortable when ontology is used as something distinct from relationships. Mm. I think that's a fairly modern, well, especially an ancient phenomenon. It, it goes back, I think, to Aristotle, where uh, you, the, the relationship of something is accidental to what that thing is. In other words, that thing can be spoken of as and, and in terms of its ontology, apart from its relationships. And I don't think that's what we see in the, in the Bible uh, across, the, across the text when it comes to God. To speak of God's being and his ontology is to speak of God in relationship with his people. Okay, well, one text that you spend a lot of time with uh, and whose significance I'm, I'm really beginning to see, having, having read some of your book and some of the reviews of it and stuff, is First Corinthians 8. Um, you see, if I understand you correctly, what you see is the way that relationship with God is contrasted, relationship with the one true God of Israel is contrasted with idolatry in the very same way, or at least in a very similar way, in which relationship with Christ is contrasted with idolatry. And, and that sounds very compelling to me. Can you, can you talk a little bit more about that and how we can see this in 1 Corinthians 8? Yeah, sure. Um, why don't we open it up? Let me open up my Bible software here. Um, but if I were to, uh, to begin, I, I've just explained, as I, and I think this is a fairly uncontroversial position to take. It will undoubtedly need more substantiation um, from scholars in different uh, areas of, of um, biblical studies, whether it's Old Testament or whether it's um, uh, pseudepigraphal or, or whatever else. Um, let me just get this up. But God is... Are known in his unique identity in terms of committed the committed love of people over against idolatry. Mm. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul seems to be playing with, with this Shema-type understanding of monotheism. Um, in fact, I think it's explicit in this text. We have uh, language of, of God as one and, and of love for God. And, and such like. In other words, it's all evoking Shema language, but particularly in verse 6, and it's well known that the Greek translation, the Septuagint translation of the, of the Hebrew of the Shema, each and every single word of that Shema is found in, in verse 6. So we have, I think, Shema-shaped monotheism in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And scholars uh, who would disagree with divine Christology would agree with that. They, they just won't be so clear what Paul is doing with that. But what I think Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians 8, he's combating the knowledgeable. Now, the knowledgeable think that they have their theology sewn up in neat propositions. All of <laughs> us possess knowledge, you know. Uh, uh, it's, it's, there is no idol in the world that really exists. There is no God but one. Now, these are true statements, um, but they are adopted into um, a lifestyle which actually leads to great damage for, mm. for the weak uh, in, in Corinth. You see, they're accustomed to going along to the idol temples and worshipping there and participating in the worship of the God at the meals and so on and so forth. And here we have these knowledgeable Christians in Corinth doing 
doing exactly the same things they used to do, but they have a different take on it now because there is no God but one and there is no idol in the world that really exists. So we can happily go along and enjoy the, the meat that is, that is there in the temple. Paul thinks that they have massively misunderstood monotheism by doing this. They've mis massively misunderstood what theology is all about because theology is not just about neat, nice little propositions. It is about how you live and love and relate as a community and how you uh, live and love and relate with God as well. Hence the echoes of the Shema, hence reference to how they are treating their brothers and sisters in this text. So with all of that established, and, and thus far I think it's pretty uncontroversial, Paul does something rather astonishing in this argument. And you see, many scholars will just go to 1 Corinthians 8, 6, yet for us there is one <laughs> God the Father from whom are all things and for we exist, blah, blah, blah. They'll go straight to this verse and try to dissect whether this means a divine Christology. Now there's some usefulness to, to an ex the extensive exegesis of this one verse, but this one verse is a part of a much longer argument that extends from the beginning of 1 Corinthians 8.1 right through to the end of chapter 10, or certainly to 10.22. And in this text, Paul has set up monotheism as this relational, loving commitment to the one God of Israel over against idolatry. Yeah, through the Shema. Um, that, and so he, uh, he will respond to these knowledgeables uh, but anyone who loves God is known by him. He, he said anyone who claims to know something does not have the necessary knowledge. So he's not against knowledge. He's speaking of a necessary knowledge, and then it comes. But anyone who loves God is known by him. So he's, he's trying to wrestle this true, true monotheism, uh, uh, sorry, uh, to the false way of understanding theology away from these Corinthians and to give them this monotheism. But for the rest of this argument, right through to 1022, Paul doesn't go on to speak about, as you would perhaps expect, the relationship between these Corinthian Christians and God over against idolatry. Rather, the argument goes in a very typical fashion, as I show throughout the book, and turns to the relationship between these Christians and the risen Lord Jesus over against idolatry. And Paul describes this relationship using the language that Second Temple Judaism used to describe their relationship with Yahweh. Now remember, that is precisely how we identify uh, the divine identity, you know, the, the, how, how we know who God is through this unique covenantal relationship with his people. And this language is then used to speak about Christ. So you get, for example, uh, in chapter 8, verse 6, will be an example of that. But also, uh, verse 12 but when you thus sin against members of your family and wound their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. And, and you, know, you don't have to go far in the Old Testament. A number of passages speak of when you sin against your, your brothers in, 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 uh, in unspeakable ways, it's actually sin against God. So perhaps the most prayed psalm, certainly the most prayed psalm in my repertoire, the Confession of David when he's uh, sinned with Bathsheba, and Uriah the Hittite has been sent to the front lines and, and killed, you know. And then in this prayer you have against you, you only have I sinned and mm. done what is evil in your sight. Now, some may be thinking, well, hang on a minute, didn't you also sin against Bathsheba and Uriah the Hittite as well? How <laughs> would I think this is just very typical Jewish language to express relationship with Yahweh? Uh, and then Christ is included in this. But that line of argument, is picked up. I mean, most scholars would agree that there is a slight digressio in chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians. Paul picks up his main line of argument again in 1 Corinthians 10. And in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul relentlessly uh, describes the relationship between the, uh, the Corinthian Christians and the risen Lord using the language that Second Temple Judaism used to describe its relationship with God. Uh, this is uh, the particular um, Deuteronomic or Pentateuchal narratives, a number of them are, are, are alluded to in uh, the first few uh, verses up to about verse 9, or even before, maybe up to about 10 or 11, I forget now. Uh, and um, the, so we speak, of, we hear of the, the rock, uh, the spiritual rock, which was Christ, and do not put Christ to the test as some of, as some of them did. 
and were destroyed by serpents. Um, so is it clear ways of describing Israel's faltering relationship with Yahweh is used to describe the danger of relationship with Christ in Corinth when there is capitulation to idolatry. And then this leads to uh, a, a, a very instructive parallel between idolatry and relation to Christ uh, in the verses leading up to verse 21. Um, the, the, the sharing in the blood and the, and the blood, of, blood of Christ are are taken to be examples over against idols and, and pagan sacrifices. Um, and then uh, finally leading into verse 22, it finishes off with this, are we provoking the Lord to jealousy? Which is again picking up on this Pentateuchal language which described the relation between Israel and Yahweh, used here to describe the relationship between Christians and, and Christ. Hmm. So, in other words... In that context where monotheism is described as the relational commitments of, of the people of God to the, to the one God of Israel over against capitulation to idolatry, precisely in that context, Paul develops an argument which describes the faithfulness of the Christian's commitment to Christ over against idolatry. Mm. This, remember, this, I'm not putting all of my weight on this passage, although I think it's a good reading of the passage. This is an introduction to the sure. wider argument, which is to say, guys, in almost every single chapter of every single letter that we have from Paul, he describes this Christ relation, this relation between the risen Lord and believers in the ways that Second Temple Judaism used to describe uh, uh, um, Israel's relationship with Yahweh. This isn't isolated. It's all over the place, this mm. relational divine Christology. That's really powerful. And, and in fact, you know, mentioning the, the Second Temple Judaism texts, you, uh, uh, you have an interesting thought experiment that you ask your readers to participate in in chapter 9 of your book. Um, if I understand it correctly, you make the argument that, you know, um, critics of, of a divine Christology will point out that the language uh, spoken about of Christ is very similar to the way these divine agents are spoken of in Second Temple Judaism texts. And yet you make the claim that actually the similarities are far stronger between uh, between the language of Christ and the places in the Second Temple Judaism texts that attribute, you know, a uh, monotheistic relationship with God alone, that kind of a thing. Is that right? That's absolutely right, yes. Yes, I go to, um, uh, let me go to chapter 9. Uh, there's a couple of passages I go to. There's, there's Sirach 44 uh, to 50, but also um, the life of Adam and Eve. Now, both of these, these passages, and, and First Enoch as well, the similitudes of Enoch, all of these passages have been used by those who would want to say uh, against the arguments of people like Borkham and Hurtado, look, there is evidence that figures other than God were being worshipped or treated as divine or included in the divine identity in various ways. So Satan is commanded to, uh, to worship Adam and in the life of Adam and Eve. And there's exalted language used to describe um, various figures, actually, in, in Sirach, the, um, the ancestors. Uh, but, but not just um, uh, the ancestors, uh, a number of figures. Uh, if I were to give an example um, from that passage, Simon, um, son of Onius, in, in chapter 50, is, his glorious appearance is described and how he was considered to save his people. And, and he is you know, described with exalted language. Now, all of this sounds a little bit like how Christ is spoken of in Paul's letters. He saves, uh, he, he is described in glorious and exalted terminology. So is Paul's Christ just another divine agent, distinct from God, and yet nevertheless heavenly exalted? What I do in my book is, is rather than I mean, it's a little bit of a cheeky maneuver. <laughs> I, I don't want to use all of the passages in the canonical Old Testament and other texts that would totally support my particular argument regarding monotheism and such like. I use only these supposedly problematic texts to make mm. my case because the case is so overwhelmingly strong. And it's actually quite instructive 
to do so. What I do, for example, in, in Sirach 44 to 50, I analyze all of the exalted language ascribed to figures other than God, like Simon and others. And I go through the life of Adam and Eve, and I look at all of the ways um, uh, exalted beings are described, or the worship is ascribed to Adam and, and such like, uh, and, and angels and angelic figures. And, and then I look at how God is described in all of these uh, uh, texts, in Sirach 44 to 50 and, and in the life of Adam and Eve. And then it becomes abundantly clear that though there may be occasional verbal parallels between uh, Christ in Paul's letters and some of the language used of these, these figures in these other texts. For example, Christ is described as the image of God in Colossians uh, in the same way as Adam is described in the life of Adam and Eve. But the, the vast majority of these texts, I'm, I'm talking about 99% of the texts, you know, this is, this is not an insignificant majority of the texts, actually describes the God relation in those texts, how God is described in relation to his people in those texts. It's how Paul describes Christ's relationship to, to his people, to believers in the church. So if we're looking for parallels in any of these texts, when we're looking at Paul's Christ language, then it's God, not these practically insignificant fragments <laughs> that, that only relate in the occasional verse here and there in page after page of text. So that's my argument. I actually go to show that if we're going to have a thought experiment, let's imagine Paul only had these difficult texts in front of him when he was developing his Christology. Never mind the rest of the Old Testament, never mind the Jewish Shema, never mind all of that stuff, which is clearly in favor of my view. He only had Sirach 44 to 50, the life of Adam and Eve, and those other texts in First Enoch. And now on the basis of that evidence alone, that is, that is sufficient to say Paul's Christ is uh, equivalent to the God, a God in these texts, not these agency figures. Uh, where agency language is used by Paul, it is adopted into a completely different framework and, and taken to mean something vastly different, which is why I don't think Larry Hurtado is hitting the nail on the head by focusing on the divine agents. I think what, what we must do is focus on Paul's language and the interrelated nature of the themes and topics that we find in Paul's own letters. There we find what I describe as the Christ relation. That's on, in other words, that's Paul's own terms for talking about Christ. Once we've got that clear, then we can go back to those other texts and all of a sudden things start to fall in place and Christ is described in relation as God was described in relation in those texts. Yeah. That's really, that's really powerful, really profound. Uh, you know, I, I want to start to wrap up because uh, we're running out of time, but um, a, a question I have for you is the contributions of Fee, Bauckham, and Hurtado were all ex excellent. I think that you've, you've got great praise for them, but nevertheless, you think that there was work that still needed to be done, gaps yet to fill, gaps that you attempted to uh, fill in your book. What further work do you think is still left to be done after your book? What are some gaps in the uh, Christological debate that future scholars can fill for us? Oh, goodness. Uh, I think um, a review's been written by a student in, in Australia, and he's pointed out that I, I didn't do enough with Paul's in Christ language, the in Christo. And, and that's true. And I'd, be, I'd like to see that integrated more self-consciously into the matter. I, I just had enough on my plate. And I think um, uh, uh, Campbell in his book, Paul and Union with Christ, has, has done some of that already. Uh, I think, too, um, some work needs to be done on Pauline epistemology, and, and that is, how does Paul know? And again, I argue, Paul knows a, in a relational way, which just further goes to show that when we are speaking of Christ relation, we are speaking of his Christology, and hence his divine Christology. I think also some further work needs to be done on the Second Temple Jewish text. So I would like to... Uh, to do that at some stage, but I lack the expertise. I, I, expertise, I think it's fair to say, going through all of the Second Temple literature to so, show that a strict relational monotheism is appropriate, uh, um, an appropriate descriptive phrase. Um, beyond that, I mean, my own work is turning now to, disc to, to try to find out 
if, if Paul's Christology is divine, which I think is a fact, frankly, I mean, <laughs> I don't see any way this argument can be overturned, and I'm, uh, I, I just don't see it. Uh, genuinely, I don't see how this, this argument can be refuted. But if, uh, if this is the case, why did Paul and all other, other early Christians seem to unanimously believe in this divine Christology so understood? Why? Where did it come from? And I think a lot more work needs to be done on this, because the mm. arguments that I've heard up till now simply do not, do not convince me. And, and here I, I think a little bit of, of Larry Hurtado's own uh, helpful and important work uh, regarding the revelatory experience of the early Christians, and they felt compelled to treat Christ as divine. problem I have with that is, why is there such unity in belief regarding the divine identity of Christ in the early church? If it was mm. based on pneumatic experiences, surely there would have been disagreement as there were on many other things. And so ultimately, I think we must go back to the historical Jesus himself for understanding the origin of divine Christology, which actually is a shortcut and diverts our attention away from agency and such like, however useful that is to a certain extent. So there's some of the things I think we need to um, consider. I think... It's very good. I, I think too, if I, if I may, and just... Sure. There's... This, this debate matters an, an awful lot. Um, you see, this gets to the heart of, of Christian faith. If Christ isn't God, then we might as well pack up our bags and go home as the church. Uh, because to say Christ is God is to say Christ reveals God as God. You know, there's, there's an epistemological counterpart to the ontology of Christ's of being one substance with the Father, to use the later creedal language, which I think is appropriate uh, to Paul's letters. The ontology they use is maybe slightly different, um, but it is still both ontological divine Christology. Now, in other words, the confidence that we have that we know God, that the God we pray to is who he is, the God we worship is who he is, that he has acted to set us free in divine and unconditioned love. This is based on the core point that Christ reveals God as God. You know, we're not doing this with our own intelligence and trying to come up with theories about theism. God speaks to us in Jesus Christ and we listen. That's, that's, that's the basis of Orthodox Christology. It gives confidence and life to everything else in the church. This is why Arianism, and again I use that word as a cipher, is so insidious. Whether it is explicit Arianism or whether it is methodological and subtle Arianism, in one way or another Christ isn't God and therefore does not reveal God as God. Now my main question to Arians then is, how do you know about this God? You know, on what basis? If it isn't based on Christ, where do you get your secret knowledge of God? And this is Athanasius' critique, uh, at least partly, of, of, of Arius or Arianism. It, it simply cannot stand on two feet. There is no point in creation that can bear the weight of the knowledge of God. It is only Jesus Christ. And that is because he is one being with the Father. And so I think this matters. It matters into our prayer life. It matters into our worship. It matters into our theology. It matters into our... In everything, discipleship, everything is, is impacted by this choice that we make. Now, I know that raises the stakes. That isn't to say, <laughs> therefore, my theory is right. That's not why I say this. But it does raise the stakes, I mm. think, and why we need a very firm foundation, which is what I think I offer in my book, Almost every single chapter of every single letter Paul writes is evidence of a divine Christology. We don't need to put the weight of all of this on just a few isolated passages, as all of these New Testament scholars do. Well, that's excellent. I think that's a very good parting message for our listeners. Where can they go to find you personally online, and, and what's the best way for them to purchase a copy of your book? <laughs> Yeah, I apologize profoundly for the cost of my book. I'm, I'm, I'm in conversation with a publishing house at the moment, and I'm hoping that um, they're going to publish a version of my book, um, and it'll be much cheaper. Uh, I saw it as $130 in America, my book, and my sincere apologies for that. Uh, 
honestly, my, my, you certainly go to my blog. It's blog.christilling.de. Uh, the blog is Christendom without the T. But, you know, I usually prattle around and do silly things on the blog. I, I tend not to have too much time for doing any significant work there anymore. Um, but, um, I mean, I, I have a Twitter account as well. Uh, I forget. I think it's just Chris Stilling. I, I can't remember now. Um, but there are ways to, to find me online. Okay. And until you do, until and if you do find a publisher uh, that will publish it for cheaper, um, listeners can find your book at Amazon by searching for Paul's Divine Christology or searching for Chris Tilling at Amazon. And you're right, it is a little bit pricey, but it's definitely well worth uh, well worth the price. So thank you so oh, much, thank uh, you, Chris. Chris. <laughs> I'm not sure about that, but I thank you. <laughs> no, I think it is. I think it is. And I really appreciate your time today. And um, just, yeah, thank you so much. Pleasure to chat with you, Chris. Thanks very much. Well, I just thought that was incredible, and I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Uh, Stay tuned for upcoming episodes of the The Apologetics Podcast, where we'll talk more about uh, Christology and help my friend Phil prepare for his debate. Until then...